This is They Create Worlds, episode 178, The Intellivision, part 2. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I am Jeffrey, and I am joined by the historian Alex. Hello. Today we will go into the wonders of Intellivision Part 2. But first, we must talk about another two. 200 episodes of They Create Worlds that will happen, if I did my math right, at the end of the year in December 15th, just under a year from now. So what does that mean for you, dear listener? I want to know what you think about 200 episodes. What were your laughs? Your sadness? Your, I didn't even know that. Your, I fall asleep listening to these guys, and it really helps my insomnia problem. Whatever. Your, oh my god, why is another tangent happening right now? This isn't the topic of the episode at all. (laughs) Exactly. We have episode 200 coming up here at the end of the year, which is quite a milestone, to be frank. Absolutely. I saw some kind of statistic... And I forget the exact statistic now, so I'm probably going to mangle it, but the vast, 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 vast majority of podcasts don't get past 20 episodes or something like that. I recall reading that somewhere, too. Yeah. We'll be doing 10 times that. Yeah, to get to 10 times that, and still planning to continue on from there, of course, is quite something. Certainly something I never thought we'd necessarily do. I mean, I was excited to do this when we started this podcast, which, as we've said before, was entirely Jeff's idea. That's a lot of researching, a lot of talking, a lot of editing, a lot of man hours put into this by both of us, by me mostly on the front end, by Jeff ridiculously on the back end. I'm sure overall he spends more hours on it than I do. Yeah, 200 episodes. So as, as Jeffrey said, I mean, we're going to do something special for 200. That's December. We barely know what we're doing next week. So I can't say we have a definitive plan yet, but we would like your memories. Memories of the podcast, memories of video games, memories of what attracted you to the medium or to the history of the medium. Any memories related. If you have a tangential memory, I mean, we're all about the tangents, so we may even fit that in. And and in some way, we will incorporate some of this into our 200th episode extravaganza. Yeah, just start sending those to feedback at theycreateworlds.com. I will categorize them, read through it, pass them off to Alex, and we will use them in our 200th episode. Absolutely. I'll remind you again down the line, but I wanted to get that out there at the start of the year so that you can start thinking. Absolutely. We have this intelligent television put out by Barbie, or Mattel, (laughs) one of them. It's okay-ish, but it had some major issues with being accepted, becoming cool and awesome, and it looked like it was pretty much going to be, and that flopped, but something here saves it, brings it out of the darkness, and makes it actually really, really awesome for a little bit until that little thing called the crash happened. Exactly. The Intellivision was a weird product. Just to briefly, in a way, recap uh, what we talked about last time. It was meant to be a video game system, obviously, 
But a lot of people within the group were seeing it as something more than that. Uh, the designer, the principal in hardware engineer in charge of it, David Chandler, even the heads of Mattel Electronics Division of Mattel Toys, Ed Krakauer and Jeff Rockless, they saw an opportunity to create something that was going to expand into something much bigger than just a video game system. They saw this whole home computer thing coming down the pike, and they wanted this to become a leapfrog into home computing. They were not unique, as we talked about last time, amongst console makers at this time in thinking in those terms. Atari had started a project that was a hybrid game console computer project, the Atari 400 and 800. They both ended up being computers. But when they were conceptualized, what became the 400 was going to be a game system. What was going to be the 800 was going to be the computer. APF, a company that is not well-remembered today, but was one of the powerhouses in the dedicated video game console market in the mid-70s, had created their imagination system by actually taking their console, the MP1000, and creating a docking station for it that expanded it into a full computer with a tape drive and more memory and all of this fancy kind of stuff, keyboard. They were doing this system. You know, this was kind of in the air at the time. There was this thought that this merger is something that should happen. Mattel was very keen to do this, particularly the Mattel Electronics people. And this was a big part of what kind of sort of in a way sold upper management on keeping going. But at the same time, upper management was also very leery about this. Now, when I talk about upper management, we've got a lot of hierarchy. Mattel's actually a pretty big company, a pretty sophisticated company, the most sophisticated toy company probably at this point in terms of being a corporation with marketing and market research and all of this kind of thing. They're early into overseas manufacturing. I mean, they're, they're really a sophisticated company. There's a lot of ins and outs here. So we have Mattel Electronics, which is run by Ed Krakauer as general manager and Jeff Rockless as president. This is a division of Mattel Toys run by Ray Wagner, which is the toy division of Mattel. And you're maybe thinking, wait, toy division of a toy company? Well, we talked about this in some other episodes briefly, so we won't go into it here. But Mattel had really diversified into films, into publishing, into other forms of equipment like playground equipment, aquarium stuff, all sorts of weirdness. So Mattel Toys is actually a subsidiary of Mattel Inc., Mattel Inc. is the overall company. That's the big company. It is run by Art Spear as chairman and CEO, who took over after the handlers were forced out of the company. So there's a lot of layers of approval you have to get to be like, hey, video games sound cool. Why don't we do that? We talked about some of those struggles in getting it approved in the last episode, so we won't rehash, except to say that one of the things that Jeff Rockless in particular, who was the real champion with the Mattel board in getting this reinstated, one of the things that Rockless really pushed was video game today, computer tomorrow. That was a big part of his vision, and that was also a big part of David Chandler's vision. Turns out, that wasn't the vision of the general public. The general public was starting to get interested in this idea of computers. Obviously, things like the Apple II and the TRS-80 were starting to generate some excitement. But the public did not particularly care about their video game systems being computers. This hybrid approach just didn't resonate. On top of that, on the Mattel side, even getting this computer thing together was becoming more and more of a problem. We'll get into those details later in the episode. But just to contextualize it right now, this thing was going to be coming way later and be way more expensive than was originally thought. Mattel's early advertising 
Mattel Electronics Early Advertising on the Intellivision was really focusing on how the Intellivision was going to change your life because you would be able to play games and then you were going to have this computer thing. This was not happening because this keyboard component was nowhere in sight. It wasn't going to be a computer. It was going to be a video game system. And it was going to be a video game system that was way more expensive, $250 versus a $200 Atari VCS that, quite frankly, was often discounted by retailers even lower to $180 to $170, often wasn't even $200 in the field, even though that was the suggested retail price. That was a really hard sell, and they weren't selling it because they were selling it as this computer thing that wasn't even a computer. So the marketing was not aligned with this. Meanwhile, upper management has never been completely comfortable with this video game thing. I think that's a toy company mentality. We've talked about toy companies before and how in this time period they sell a lot of really cheap, low-margin items through toy stores. They don't sell expensive things. Getting above $30 is a bit scary. Toy stores don't tend to stock these things. You know, video games in these days, you know, in our childhood, we think of going down to Toys R Us or maybe even setting foot in a KB toy store in a mall and and buying a video game. You could also buy them other places, but that's something that's natural to you and I, kids of the late 80s, early 90s. They weren't really sold very much in toy stores in this time period. Because this is something the toy stores were very unfamiliar with as well. Some of the big chains, like Toys R Us, really embraced them heavily as the early 1980s go on. But this is largely a department store item. Yes, toys also sell department stores. It's not like toy companies don't have relationship with department stores, too. It's just one part of their larger infrastructure. And so Mattel Upper Management was never really comfortable with this. Both Ed Krakauer and Jeff Rockless felt like they never got a lot of support from upper management. To upper management's credit, they let them do it. I mean, Art Spear did take the risk. But Ed Krakauer, whom I've interviewed, very much remembers that Art Spear said, you know, we're going to let you do this, but if it doesn't succeed, you're on your own. The famous statement goes, success has many fathers while failure is an orphan. What Spear was basically saying is, if this succeeds, this will be a great thing for Mattel, and that's great. But if it fails, Mattel didn't do this, you did it. You know? (laughs) Yeah, it came up in the last episode. It's just sort of like, we will disavow any knowledge if you fail. But if you succeed, you will come home a champion. Yeah, you know, come back with your shield or on it, essentially. Pretty much, yeah. As Krakauer and his Chandler and his Rockless were really trying to push this computer thing more and more, Upper management was getting more and more disillusioned with this, no doubt seeing some of the struggles that they were having even getting this keyboard component thing together. This disconnect, along with the continuing delays that we talked about last episode for even getting the basic system out, the master component as they called it, because it was meant to be expandable, there was a lot of turnover in Mattel Electronics management. People weren't fired. People were just getting fed up and leaving. This included Krakauer and Rockless. In the fall of 1980, which, as we may recall, is in this period where they're trying to get this rolled out nationally. They had their test market in 1979. They've had some limited markets in early 1980. They're really trying to ramp up to their full fancy national release in the fall of 1980. Right at this time, this sense of disillusionment reaches its peak with this Mattel management, and both Krakauer and Rockless leave. They're not fired. They're not asked to resign. 
it's not Mattel cleaning house. It's just they see this project dead ending. They see the project taking a future direction that they don't want to take, and they're eager to go back out into the world and do something new. And they do some other ventures, both of them, that are both electronic games and video games related, most notably the Vectrex, which comes out a few years later. So the top management of the company leaves right in this period of crisis that we already set up at the end of the last episode. This may end up being somewhat of a good thing, and this is not throwing any shade on Krakauer and Rockless, who did such a great job of building this infrastructure and making Mattel Electronics a success, but it's clear that the vision that they have, the vision that Mattel Inc. has, and the vision that the public has of what a video game system should be, are three very different visions. So I think they were smart at that point to bow out. And so in September 1980, Mattel Electronics gets a new president by the name of Joshua Denham. Denham is a real Mattel veteran. He's been with the company since 1965. He has run all sorts of aspects of the company. He's been involved in various parts of Mattel toys specifically throughout his run. He was one of the key executives, along with Ray Wagner, that was keeping the lights on during the nightmare period when the company was restating its earnings and the SEC was investigating and shareholders were suing the company and the handlers were being ousted and everyone was distracted with all of these legal headaches. Denim and Wagner were really the people keeping the toy company going through this nightmare. I think I've probably said this before in other episodes. You can tell a lot about where a company is heading during a management change by the background of the person that's brought in to be the new leader of an organization. Most of the time, it's sales and marketing people that come in to be presidents or general managers or whatever you want to call them of an organization like this. And that means that, you know, you're concentrating on selling your product and doing elaborate marketing campaigns and getting people excited or whatever. Sometimes the finance person is put in charge, a CFO or a comptroller or something. That's when you know a business is in trouble because they're bringing in the finance person to cut costs and save money wherever they possibly can. Denim was neither of those things. Denim was something else, which is not as common, I think. I mean, I don't have any studies to back that up, but my guess is not as common. He was an operations person. He was a manufacturing person. He was a distribution person. He had run distribution for a while for Mattel Toys. He had run their Far East operations because, as I said, they were one of the early companies to move manufacturing overseas. From 1972 until his promotion to President Mattel Electronics in 1980, he was the VP of operations for Mattel Toys. Now, operations is more than manufacturing. The split is operations is kind of Everything operational, manufacturing, development, even sales and marketing sometimes, though not necessarily, as separate from things like finance and business development. So he wasn't solely a manufacturing guy, but he was a real manufacturing guru. He had to understand how does the production work, what sales may be wanting to provide a customer, and put some reality checks on it. Exactly. I have to deal with people in my own line of work that's sort of like that, where (laughs) we have a person who is dedicated to, okay, here's what sales wants to tell the customer. What can (laughs) we actually do? And they have to understand what is capable with production, what's capable with what's our marketing things doing, Mm -hmm. what is our overall facility capable of 
producing at a reasonable price and make sure that pricing, go talk to the finance guy, make sure, okay, here's what we think our cost is for producing this product. Let's make sure we have the right markup. Let's do this. It's actually a very important role. And actually, I would say that bringing him in is in a way means that Mattel is doing better than just bringing in a marketing guy. Mm -hmm. But the marketing guy is like, okay, yeah, I want to have these pie in the sky. Let's just wow everyone. We are so awesome and great. Throw parades and stuff. Finance guy. Yeah, let's see who we want to get off this team. You cost me too much money. Bye-bye. <laughs> and then the operations guy's like, let's do something that's just going to strengthen our foundation. Exactly. No, that's an absolutely great way to put it. And I think hiring Josh Denham for this role, that's very clearly what Mattel wants, because there are so many problems right now. The marketing message is not working. They're having real manufacturing problems. Their partner, Sylvania, has not been a great partner. The Intellivision itself is kind of more expensive probably than it needs to be to produce even, because David Chandler came out of the aerospace industry. Some of the decisions that he made in terms of components that go into the Intellivision were made from the perspective of an aerospace engineer. A plane can't fail. Plane fail, people die. Console fail, child cry, and you buy a new one. Plane fail, people die. So there were some component choices made that were very expensive. Sylvania, who we talked about last time, were proving to be kind of an iffy partner in terms of reliable manufacturing. General Instrument, who's providing all the chips, is having problems with yield rates and defective chips, which is driving up costs. The keyboard component, which we will talk about in more detail in a bit, we're just previewing again, is out of control. So there's all sorts of manufacturing problems. There's all sorts of development problems. There's all sorts of marketing problems. So as you said, the operations guy is the guy you bring in to fix all of that messes, because this is a realistic, grounded guy that's in tune with the realities of what can be done and is used to deploying practical solutions within the channels to make everything work. Right. Just realign everything so that we have a good foundation to go off of. Exactly. So Denim comes in, and they also get a new marketing person at the same time, because their previous marketing person also left. Again, not fired, just everyone is so frustrated. I talked to the sales guy during this period, uh, Malcolm Kuhn, and he left before the Intellivision even launched, because he was just getting fed up waiting for the product. Like, he was hired to sell a video game console that didn't exist. So he finally said, thank you, goodbye. So their marketing guy also left because it's like, eh, nothing's happening. And so they brought in a new marketing guy as well, one of Krakauer's last hires, someone he knew from the food products industry named Frank O'Connell. So this team of Denim and O'Connell is the team that really brings things back on track. When O'Connell comes in, one of the first things that he does, and I've interviewed him as well. I've also interviewed Josh Denham. I've interviewed both of them. One of the first things that O'Connell does is he runs market research because Mattel's a big market research company and he's new in the job and he needs to get up to speed. He learns very quickly the same thing that I've been talking about in these two episodes all along. Consumers do not care one bit about turning Intellivision into a computer. Maybe if it had been presented to them in a different way or if there was an actual working component, maybe they'd have cared. Who knows? But the reality on the ground is they do not care. However, they were interested in the fact that it seemed to be superior technologically to the Atari VCS. We talked about this last episode, how it did much better backgrounds, more objects on the screen, more memory. The exec offloaded a lot of standard stuff. So, I mean, you know, it, it was technologically very nice compared to the VCS, which is pretty limited. 
So that gets him to thinking that he's got to do something here to highlight the technological advantage rather than highlight this amorphous, hey, maybe it'll be a computer someday that they'd been doing. Denim is starting to get the same idea as well, because, I mean, you look at a VCS, you look at an Intellivision, and you look at the graphics on the screen, and it's very clear that there's something there. So O'Connell and Denim decide that the way to reposition this system is to actually take Atari head-on and be like, okay, we've got a technologically superior system. Let's get that point across to the public. So remember, video games are new at this point. The audience is very unsophisticated. Uneducated. It's not like today. Yeah. A lot of us today might think, oh yeah, this person's dumb with electronics, or this one's dumb with computers, or this one doesn't know how to do whatever. Today, we do not really appreciate how it was, and I can't believe how much I'm dating myself here, 40 years ago, when this is coming out, and people are like, I can barely understand how to plug in my television, let alone adding peripherals to the television. Exactly. That's part of the reason why these things are being sold more in department stores and less in places like Kmart and toy stores, is because the public is being educated at the exact same time this stuff is coming out. This stuff needs to be demoed. You don't just go into the store and are like, you know, I'll take two of those off the shelf, please. People need to be exposed to this stuff. Demonstrating the systems is a very important part of the sales process. Having trained sales staff that you can ask questions to is a very important part of the process. This is a very different video game market than the market that you or I grew up in, or even the market of a couple years later in 1982 when video games have really, really taken off. Something that might help drive this point home a little bit better. Think about when smartphones really became a thing in that early 2000s thing. You had the Apple iPhone, which is what really started the whole transition from flip phones to smartphones. When they first came out, people sort of had to be like, so what? It's just a big screen with some buttons on it. Why do I care? People had to be shown that, hey, you can put these apps on here. It can be full screen. You can run this, run that. Oh, look, Android's doing sort of the same thing with a full screen. And then I can do all these other stuff. Once the public became knowledgeable about it, that's why to this day you still have lines down the street for smartphones. Exactly. Just vaguely saying, oh, we have a technologically superior system. We have a system with better graphics. That doesn't mean anything to the general public. Those are pretty abstract concepts to the public that exists at this time. You, you can't just tell them this. You can't just have a store clerk at a department store try to explain this. You have to show the public that you have the superior product. Denim and O'Connell know this, and so they decide that they are going to do a competitive advertising campaign. We see these all the time today, and certainly you and I grew up in the time of uh, Genesis does what Nintendo don't, welcome to the next level, and all of these Sega marketing campaigns that really went after Nintendo. The toy industry did not tend to do this back in this time period. It wasn't so much because it was considered mudslinging or somehow dirty or underhanded. It's much more with the idea that, you know, the old saying goes, all publicity is good publicity, right? So when you're directly comparing something, yes, you're trying to make a case that your product is superior to the other person's product, but you're also featuring the other person's product. You're reminding the consumer that the other person's product exists. 
advertising 101, particularly in the toy industry, is that you don't want to remind anyone that the other person's product exists. I mean, even think about competitive advertising in other fields. I mean, you see a lot of competitive advertising of food, of toothpaste, of other commodities like that, but with a few rare exceptions like the classic Pepsi Challenge taste test commercials, most of the time they are comparing their product to the leading brand. They don't say what the leading brand is. They just say our product is better than the leading brand, right? (laughs) Or the generic brand or insert generic term here. I'm a Mac and I'm a PC. Note there, I didn't say Windows. I said PC. Yeah, but even that's a little bit competitive. I mean, even that's still vaguely reminding that other stuff exists. Most of the time, it's even more generic than that. It's just the leading brand or the other brand or the generic brand because they don't want to call attention. You do not call attention to another person's product. But O'Connell and Denim felt very strongly that their product was so superior to Atari and that this graphical superiority was the one real, true, honest-to-God advantage they had over Atari because they certainly didn't have the price. They didn't necessarily have as big a game library to start. You know, they had all these other disadvantages. So this technological superiority was the one advantage they had, and by gosh, they were going to use it. They pitched this to the board as, this is our one shot. This product is dying in the marketplace. This is not going well. We need to turn around consumer sentiment right now, or we are not going to make it. Remember, even at this early stage of video game history, they can already see the carnage and the corpses of those that came before. Because you already had Fairchild and RCA and Bally releasing programmable console systems in the late 70s that are already dead by 1980. Dead in the water. So, I mean, this is a very real thing. Like, this moves quickly, and this is our one chance. The board approved doing a 3.5 million advertising campaign in the fall and Christmas season. Brand new campaign to try to turn this thing around. That would be just over $12.5 million today. Exactly. For, which is not a lot in overall advertising terms, but remember, they're putting together something that's only going to run literally just a few weeks before the holiday season that's very last minute. That's putting a decent amount of money behind something that's going to be this limited. You would hope that you make that and then some back. Exactly. Denim goes to Mattel Electronics Advertising Agency, Ogilvy and Mather and says, we want a competitive advertising campaign comparing the sophistication of our system, the Intellivision, to the more primitive Atari VCS. Ogilvy and Mather says, you really don't want to do this. Because Ben Ogilvy of Ogilvy and Mather is a big proponent of you never mention your competitor because you're giving them free advertising. They really resist this. They say it's a bad idea. And so Josh Denham finally says to them, I am taking a tour of our Far East facilities over the next couple of weeks. When I come back, you are going to present to me your proposals for a competitive advertising campaign, or we are beginning a search for a new ad agency. Wow. They got the message at that point. <laughs> you provide what I'm giving you money to provide me, or else I am going to give my money to someone else who will. Denim say Ogilvy do competitive advertisements. Denim tell Ogilvy what to do. Ogilvy do competitive advertisement. Overly not do for competitive advertisement, Denim send Overly out the door. <laughs> Bonus point if you get the vague reference to that one. That is a deep cut for sure. 
but one we love here at They Create Worlds. We may have used it before. I got to figure out what to do with those bonus points. No one ever emails me with what the reference is so that I can keep a little spreadsheet of who the email is, <laughs> who the person is, and how many bonus points there is. And then maybe they get a prize or something. I haven't come up with that. Who knows? Oh, dear. This sounds dangerous. Probably is. So Ogilvy and Mather, they do it. I mean, at that point, they put the campaign together. So then the other decision they have to make is who's going to be the spokesperson, because the campaign they come up with is there's going to be a person, an actual spokesperson that comes in and shows these two screens of these two systems, you know, games from these two systems and shows how superior the one is to the others. Who are they going to get to be the spokesperson that imparts this information? How about a guy in a gray suit with white hair? (laughs) And they settle on uh, an individual by the name of George Plimpton. George Plimpton is probably not a person that's very well known to our audience today, but he's quite an interesting figure. He was a writer and he was a journalist, but he cultivated a very particular kind of persona. First of all, he talked with this very sophisticated, erudite, I am well-bred kind of accent. That was a big part of his persona, kind of from New England, maybe from money somewhere. I am very sophisticated kind of way of speaking. So he radiated this idea of erudition and sophistication. You have a lot of choices when you go to your podcast history need. We have <laughs> They Create World, and then we have the other guys. <laughs> they Create World provides you sophisticated, full-blown history, while the other guys just talk about the pretty graphics. They Create World provides you with the sound and quality that you require. The other one makes you want to cry as you hear the sounds of nails on chalkboard. So, when you come to your video game history, make sure that you choose They Create Worlds, or else it's going to be a sad time. Right, and for those that remember, like, the Grey Poupon commercials in, in the 80s, you know, pardon me, sir, do you have any Grey Poupon? You know, it's, it's this idea of elevating your product. So that's a plus that Plimpton brings. The other thing is, is he's known for being participatory. He's kind of got this rugged, outdoor adventurer kind of feel. Like, he, he writes about sports and stuff, but he also participates. He got in a boxing ring and talked about his experiences doing that. He faced Major League pitching and talked about his experiences doing that. He's not a great athlete. He is a writer. But by putting himself into the picture and doing these experiences and then writing about his experiences, that's kind of the brand he developed for himself and the way he set himself apart. Kind of this gentleman, adventurer, outdoorsman, sportsman guy. It's not a direct comparison, but I think of it kind of like the most interesting man in the world. You know, those Quavo commercials featuring the most interesting man in the world. And he's, you know, this silver fox with the goatee. You never see him actually do anything, but they always call him the most interesting man in the world. And you believe it because he just kind of embodies this persona. That's kind of similar to the persona that George Plimpton, I think, crafted for himself. It's a perfect persona for this, because first of all, remember, Mattel is all about sports games. Like, their very early releases, the vast majority of them are sports games, and they're really banking on the sports games thing. Let me tell you, there are baseball and football games on the VCS, and that system is not sophisticated enough, especially at this stage with 2K cartridges and people not figuring out all sorts of programming tricks. This is not a system conducive to playing sports games like baseball and football. 
Point one in favor of George Plimpton is that he has this air of sophistication. Point two is that he's associated with sports and associated with playing sports and enjoying sports and experiencing sports. And Mattel is really focused on sports. So he seems like the perfect choice. Then it's O'Connell's job to get him. What they do is they go to him directly. He discovers that Plimpton is at his club or in another recollection, remembered it was a hotel, but either way, he was at this location playing golf. So they decide that they're just going to come over and talk to him directly, not go through his agent, not go through proper channels, and just hit him up directly and be like, hey, we'd like to do this thing with you. They bring the games. They bring an in television. They bring a VCS, and they basically come meet up with them. And we're like, we'd like to talk to you about you know repping our stuff. And we brought these games and everything. And Plimpton's like, okay, that's it's kind of interesting. Let's see what you got. And they end up staying up all night playing them. I mean, Plimpton never was a gamer and never would become a gamer, but he is interested in new experiences. He is interested in action and doing things. So he does take a legitimate sort of liking, according to O'Connell, to what they have to offer. And, you know, they end up playing all night and and having a good time together. So right then and there, Plimpton says, I'll do it. They still have to contact his agent and come to terms and all of this stuff. They have to go through channels to finalize the deal. But Plimpton just says right on the spot, I will do this. So that leads to the very famous commercial, which, of course, we'll put in the show notes, where George Plimpton comes out and comes up to two television screens, and one of them's got Mattel baseball and one of them's got Atari baseball. He tells the audience, you know, looks directly at the camera and tells the audience that it's very clear which one is the more sophisticated, which one is the better system. For him, it is in television. Boom. The turnaround is immediate. These commercials start airing nationally in late November. Of course, they also do print advertising campaigns as well in magazines, newspapers, whatnot. The turnaround is absolutely immediate. They end up selling out their complete stock of Intellivision systems in 1980, which is only around 175000 We've got an internal sales figure that's 175000 but there's some discrepancies because the pack-in game, Blackjack and Poker, shipped even more than that, which is confusing, though maybe that's because they shipped some sold separately too. I don't know. Some estimates also put it closer to 190,000 systems, which may be because that includes Sylvania-branded systems, because I'm not sure if the internal sales document I have includes the Sylvania-branded consoles or not, because Sylvania did market under their own name as well. You know, we're talking slightly under 200,000 systems, because remember, they're still struggling to get this whole operation going. But it's a sellout. It is finally a hit. Finally clicked with the public. Exactly. Also remember that even though those numbers are small, the overall market is still fairly small too. And so that still represents about 20% of the console market by dollar volume and 11% of the cartridge market by dollar volume. Now, they're going to capture a slightly higher percentage of the dollar volume, remember, because they do sell the Intellivision for more than the VCS. Their gain in dollar volume market share is bigger than their gain in unit volume market share, because every unit they sell is bringing in more money than the other guy from the commercials. That's good. It's finally established. It's finally coming together. And so now that they have a viable product and they know that they're going to be able to move forward with this thing. It's time for Denim to figure out what the future of this whole product ecosystem looks like. And so that's kind of what the next stage is. And it's very heavily determined by market research. It's very heavily determined by 
market realities, uh, about what their operations can do. And kind of the main goals here are continuing to figure out what the public is really looking for in a video game system on the research and marketing side, and also how they can continue to bring down the costs on the development side and continue to make sure that they can keep their development going in a realistic way. There are kind of three themes to 1981 that I kind of want to address here individually. The first is figuring out the hardware. There are three problems on the hardware side. One is that their manufacturing partner has not been the greatest. They just have not been able to produce the system at the volume that they promised. Now, some of that is probably not their fault. Some of that is probably the fault of these other interlocking issues that they're having with their suppliers. But the fact of the matter is, Sylvania is not producing. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is that the component cost is higher than it needs to be. This is what I talked about before, where Chandler came from the aerospace industry, and so he chose parts that were really durable, really rugged, that would not fail at all after a ridiculous number of uses, because that was his experience, because in aerospace, like I said, you can't have a plane go down because people will die. So that's problem number two. Problem number three is that General Instrument has been consistently having problems with some of the chips. They have to use General Instrument for the heart of the system. The CPU and the stick, the graphics chip, are General Instrument products. So, I mean, General Instrument is going to be supplying those. But General Instrument is also supplying other chips. They're supplying RAM chips. They're supplying ROM chips. They're supplying chips that don't necessarily have to come from General Instrument. General Instrument is just having problems for whatever reason with some of these chips with their yield rates. And, of course, the lower the yield rate, not only the fewer chips you have, which constricts your manufacturing capability, but also the higher cost of those chips. Because as we've talked about in other episodes, when you're creating chips, it's not like you're creating an individual tiny microchip every time. You've got this giant wafer full of chips, and you create a whole batch of chips on this wafer, and then you cut the wafer into individual pieces. The yield rate that we talk about is how many chips on your wafer are good. The higher your failure rate means the fewer chips per wafer actually works, which means the cost per wafer is higher for a finished product, which means your costs go up. So those are the three interlocking problems. And Denim is well positioned to take care of these because he's been an operations guy and he's also been Mattel's Far East guy. The first thing that he does to kind of address this is he moves manufacturing to the Far East. The Sylvania problem actually resolves itself, because in the middle of 1980, GTE Sylvania ends up being purchased by North American Philips. As we may recall from other episodes, North American Philips is also the parent company of a little thing called Magnavox, which they purchased in 1974. Magnavox, as we also may recall, has their own video game system, the Odyssey 2. Nobody, I think, on either side of this partnership, on the GT Sylvania side, on the Mattel side, want to continue a manufacturing relationship with what is now essentially a competitor. When that agreement is coming up for renewal, they do not renew. They already, thankfully, had a backup in place, though, because there was a company in the Far East called Radofin, which was a Far Eastern manufacturer founded by an American named Laurie Scott who had been an early importer of electronics from Japan. He had been one of the first, if not the first person, to import Sony transistor radios, for instance, back in the 50s. 
So they had a long-standing relationship as a Far Eastern contract manufacturer for electronics. They had already been contracted by Mattel to do the international manufacturing because Mattel is going to launch the system in Europe as well. Their European sales are never huge, but it does become available in Europe. So Radofin already had that contract. So they now give them the complete manufacturing contract for the Intellivision. Radofin is a Far Eastern manufacturer. They're really good at keeping costs down. They're Hong Kong-based. They were one of the very early companies into Hong Kong. They're very good at keeping costs down, and they work with the Mattel people to do that. One example that Laurie Scott, the son of the founder, whom I've also interviewed, one of the examples that Laurie Scott gives is the connectors for the cartridges. You use gold in those connectors because gold is a fantastic conductor. Gold is also, obviously, somewhat expensive. They had been using these really thick gold connectors, you know, with a lot of gold in them. I mean, the thickness is measured in millimeters. It's not thick to the human eye. But they were using these really, really thick gold connectors because since it's an insertion and removal thing, there's wear and tear over time, right? The friction wears them down. So you want to have a lot of gold on there so that as it wears over time, you can still use it. It doesn't fail. Chandler had chosen a really heavy-duty, really thick millimeter gold plating for this connector, again, from his aerospace industry experience. But Laurie Scott immediately realized it's like, this is a consumer electronic. It's not subjected to the same rigors, and if for some reason a cartridge fails, you're just going to have a frustrated kid. You're not going to have a plane full of people going down, that analogy I keep returning to. So we can actually use a much thinner gold connector for this product. The Mattel people are like, you know, of course, Sir Hessen's like, are you sure? Because, of course, people don't die if a single cartridge fails. But if all of their cartridges start to fail because the product isn't up to spec, the business may still die, which is a big deal in and of itself. Laurie Scott actually had his employees. It's one of these tedious things you have to do in manufacturing. Do 10,000 insertions using this connector with this thinner gold plating. He did a 10,000 insertion test where people had to literally just sit there. One, two three, four, glamorous work, to show that after 10,000 insertions, this thing still worked perfectly. Of course, even the most dedicated video game fanatic over the course of their lifetime with a particular system is not going to insert and remove their cartridge 10,000 times. That's a lot of insertions and removals. So what that means is, okay, this is actually going to work. These kinds of things, this kind of knowledge was brought to the process by Radofin, and they worked very closely with Mattel to reduce some of these manufacturing costs. They were also a more reliable manufacturing partner. So there's two of the three things taken care of right off the bat. The other thing that Denim does is he decides that he needs a really good operations guy for Mattel Electronics. He comes from operations himself. He knows how important this is. So he actually goes outside the company, and he goes to Texas Instruments which, of course, is one of the absolute gold standards of the electronics industry in general, chip manufacturing and all of that stuff as well. I mean, these are the guys. He hires a guy named Stavros Prodmoro to be the new head of operations for Mattel Electronics, who was going to have manufacturing reporting to him, but also R&D and some of these other departments as well. But even though he's got those other areas reporting to him, he's really brought in to be the manufacturing guru, because TI knows how to manufacture a product. Stav, as he's called for short, Stav brings in some of his people, you know, follow him from TI. So there's this whole group of new TI people to come in to completely redo the operational side of the company and the manufacturing side of the company. 
He starts by going out and finding alternate suppliers for some of these chips that General Instrument is having a problem manufacturing. He also immediately starts work on a cost-reduced version of the system. It's going to be smaller, more compact, use fewer chips, use cheaper chips, whatever. It takes until 1983. Even though they start this in 1981, they have some delays getting this thing working, and it doesn't come out until 1983. But this is the system that ends up coming out that's called the Intellivision 2. And the Intellivision 2 is not a new system, like there's no enhancements to it whatsoever. It's just that they improve it. It has a new case. It has a detachable power supply and detachable controllers so that, you know, a failure of those systems doesn't ruin the whole console. It's in a smaller, compactor form factor, you know, smaller board, cheaper, all of that. It's a cost-reduced version of the Intellivision. In a modern context, it would be the example of the PlayStation 2 and the PlayStation Slim. Exactly correct. That's kind of what goes on on that side of things. That's how Denim addresses in 1981 this manufacturing and operational side. The next thing they have to figure out is keeping their development process for software sustainable. We haven't talked about software yet in this episode, but just as a reminder from last episode, at this point, Mattel does not have an in-house software capability. They are not making their own games in-house like everyone else that was in this business was doing. They have been contracting with a firm called APH, which we talked about last time, so we don't have to go into their history again. APH is basically doing this on a contract basis, and they are hiring part-time Caltech students to do the work for them because they have the Caltech connection that we talked about last time. That's how they keep their costs down. I mean, they have a few employees that are actual employees, but a lot of the work is essentially being done by summer interns, those summer interns that are very good at what they do. The basic arrangement is that Mattel pays APH, and I didn't get this information, but there's a couple of scholars doing an Intellivision book that have gotten this information, Bullistoff and Braxton. Mattel pays APH $12,000 to develop a game. It's a contract basis. APH then turns around and gives the job to one of these university student part-time hires. They're paying them a minimum wage because they don't only work for Mattel. They're doing a lot of projects. They pay them minimum wage, and then they pay them roughly $3,000 out of that $12,000 contract for making the game. It may sound like, boy, that's exploitative, but it's not as bad as it sounds. It's not as exploitative as it sounds because this was basically a summer job for these college students. So instead of making minimum wage flipping burgers at a McDonald's, They're making minimum wage plus a $3,000 bonus to create a video game. It's actually a pretty good deal for everyone involved. Not to mention it looks a lot better on a resume that, hey, I'm trying to do electronic (laughs) stuff. Here, I made this video game. You can play it now. Versus, I flipped a burger yesterday. You can't look at it because someone ate it. But, you know, I flipped it good. (laughs) Right, right. It's a great arrangement for everybody because it keeps Mattel's software development costs low, and it gives something for these college students to do that's very productive and and earns them a little more money than they would otherwise in addition to the resume boost. The problem is it does mean that Mattel is entirely dependent on APH for its software. APH can basically decide that we are altering the deal. Pray we do not alter it further. Today we will be requiring $15,000 for your game. Pray do we do not make it seventeen. By the way, perhaps we'll also ask for a royalty on units sold. Of at least 3%. 
this was not a sustainable model. And Mattel Electronics, everyone at Mattel Electronics knew this. They knew that now that they had this thing established, now that they've got the hardware, now that they know that they're going to have a viable product that's going to last past this first Christmas, they really need to have their own in-house group. Now, they never stop using APH altogether because APH is useful. But they know that they need to have their own in-house programming group because APH could otherwise start demanding more and more and more and really cutting into their business. They are, at this point, started creating their own handheld products. So they do have software engineers on staff at Mattel Electronics. Because remember, Mattel Electronics is not just the Intellivision. It is also all of the handheld games that they have been producing since 1977. They have brought some software people in-house for that. They have some guys already on staff, and they pick two of them, Mike Minkoff and Rick Levine, to go to APH, and they tell APH, teach our guys everything about making software for the Intellivision. Because remember, Mattel has nobody that knows about this. APH built the operating system. APH created their own development tools. APH has done all the programming. All of that software knowledge is entirely at APH. So they said, here's two of our guys, teach them everything they need to know. Minkoff and Levine become the first two in-house developers. They learn everything from APH. They come back. The first game that they do is PBA Bowling. Again, it's got a license like all these things do, which is the first game that is developed in-house by the team at Mattel. Now, they also, of course, need a manager at this point because they are creating an in-house group. It's going to be part of design and development which is under Richard Chang, the guy that kind of got the whole Intellivision thing rolling in the first place. But they do need kind of a manager specifically for the programmers. They end up hiring a gentleman by the name of Gabriel Baum. Gabriel Baum was actually based in England. I think he's Australian, if I remember correctly, but he was working in the United Kingdom. He was actually working for the company Thorn EMI, the major record company, that was starting to get involved in the computer scene that was developing in the United Kingdom. They were actually developing language software, software to help you learn conversational French, conversational German, etc., for the Atari 8-bit computers, for the Atari 400-800 computers, because this was slightly before the homegrown industry was really starting to develop with things like the ZX81, the ZX Spectrum, all of that. So they were targeting the the Atari 8-bit computers. He ended up meeting with Denim because they were starting to look internationally. They were starting to figure out what other partners they could have in this business. And so he ends up meeting Baum when he takes a trip over to Europe and is uh, kind of getting a sense of the software scene there. And according to Baum, who I haven't talked to, but who Bolstorff and Braxton uh, talked to for their book, he kind of gave, as he called it, a rant to Denim about the challenges of managing programmers in a creative context as opposed to a traditional software engineering context. As Baum put it, Denim must have liked his rant because very soon after that, in in early 1981, he received a job offer to come and manage the programmers that were being hired into Mattel Electronics. Baum does. He comes over, and he's kind of informally the program manager. And then by the middle of the year, it's, it's actually kind of a division within the company, within Mattel Electronics, called Applications Software. Which, again, you know, that name kind of comes with this understanding that maybe they're trying to do more at some point. Maybe they're still trying to do a computer. It's not the game development department. It's not the cartridge development department. You know, it's the application software department, 
with this kind of hint that maybe it'll be more than games at some point in the future. They slowly start hiring more people. Baum, his philosophy is that he wants creative people. He looks for very non-traditional people. Because remember, this time, games are still done by a single person. Like, the programmer is the designer, is the artist, is the sound guy. You don't have teams. It takes a very special kind of programmer to do that. So Baum looks outside of traditional programmers. Yes, they hire some people that are programmers, but he's also looking for people that maybe have some programming knowledge and experience, but are in other fields, that their primary field is in the arts or humanities or someplace like that. because. It's easier to teach somebody that knows a little bit of programming how to program real good than to take someone who can program real good and suddenly teach them how to be creative. That's actually very true for a lot of different fields, especially with something like soft skills, how to be interpersonal and stuff. There is a famous book, How to Make Friends and Influence People by Daniel Carnegie. Mm -hmm. about those soft skills and how to better implement them to try and convey what you want to have someone else do or try to help them do better. Where this comes in is it's really hard to teach that. Even for someone who wants to learn soft skills, it's extremely hard to teach that. You have to work on it on your own constantly, not as a, hey, yeah, I learned this. You have to almost integrate it into your life. Mm -hmm. One major point that's always struck me in that book was that as a hiring person, I want to hire someone who has those soft skills, who knows how to de-escalate a tense situation, someone who can communicate well. I can teach someone the technical skills. That's really not that hard. That's actually the easy bit. Teaching soft skills is next to impossible after you have someone on board. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's the approach that Baum takes. And, you know, they get people from a wide swath of the industry. I mean, they get hardcore programmers, but they also get guys like Don Daglow, who is an industry legend at this point, but he was an English major and a middle school teacher. But he had been exposed to computers in college. We've talked about him before, partly because the college started a program where they were putting terminals out in the dorms to try to entice non programming people to program. So he had experience with this. He had made some games on his own. When he learned that Mattel was hiring, that Mattel Electronics was hiring, you know, he submitted himself and, and he got hired because he was one of the very few people that had actually made games at this point. Because, of course, you can't hire game designers. There aren't any. There are a small number of people at Atari and some of the coin-op companies that have made games, but they can't poach from those companies. You know, they're hiring on the open market. And so there are no game designers. When Don Daglow answered the ad and said, yeah, I've designed games, you know, they said to him, no, you haven't, <laughs> because nobody had. But, you know, he explained to them that, you know, he had had access to the mainframe at his school, at his college, and had made some games and all of that. So he's a great example of somebody that is on the other side of this. He's an English guy. He's a teacher. But he had also dabbled in programming and, and was pretty good at it. I mean, I'm not trying to undersell his programming ability, but, you know, it wasn't his main focus in life. His main focus was these other things, but that made him a perfect hire, even outside of the fact that he also had game experience, which made him like 200% a perfect hire. Even outside of his game experience, that's the exact kind of person that Gabriel Baum was looking for. Of course, Don Daglow became a very important part of the Mattel team. He became one of two group leaders, along with Mike Minkoff, once the programming staff got even bigger and Baum had to subdivide management skills, you know, went on then to a very long and fine career in the video game industry. So that's kind of what they were trying to cultivate there. 
that's dealing with that. They're starting to slowly hire up. They're doing their own internal development. They're hiring people that have a good mix of creative and programming ability. They're still contracting with APH for some things, but they know that they will now not be beholden to APH in the future. The other leg here, kind of the three legs of the tripod we're looking at, the first was manufacturing issues in all its various forms. The second is, how do we sustain our software development without getting in real trouble with an outside contractor uh, holding us over a barrel? The third kind of component of 1981 is, okay, we've gotten people to start buying the system. We've gotten people to understand that this is a more sophisticated system than the Atari, but what is it that people really want? I mean, yes, we've sold almost 200,000 systems at this point, but that's still well behind Atari. Are we really giving people the products they want? The answer to that, quite frankly, is largely no, because they are really missing that Twitch gameplay element, that action game element, that arcade game element. Because, of course, that's another thing that has happened right in this period. When Mattel was starting the Intellivision project, which, remember, they were having preliminary discussions on it as far back as 76, 77. They had originally hoped for the system to come out in 78. It's part of this very first wave of systems. That period of time was still a period of confusion over what exactly a video game system was supposed to provide in terms of its entertainment. In that period of time, everyone was struggling to figure that out. That's why you see so many educational products, because in these early console launches from Fairchild, RCA, Atari, Mattel, because they're like, okay, well, parents may need to see some perceived value outside of playing games in order to justify buying this expensive thing, so we better make some educational software. You saw board games and card games, because they were like, okay, mom and dad might not be interested in understanding all of this crazy shooting and pong and all of this stuff, but they know what a slot machine is. They know what blackjack is. They know what poker is. They know what checkers is. Let's put some of this stuff in, which maybe gets mom and dad involved, or maybe create something that mom and dad can play together with the kids and make it more of a family thing. Maybe the kids like playing combat on the VCS, but maybe mom and dad's hand-eye coordination reflexes aren't as good as little Johnny's and little Timmy's, so they don't like playing those games with their kids, but, you know, they can play a cerebral game with them, like checkers or backgammon or something like that. You've got that, and then you've got the sports games, because everyone likes sports. Those have a defined rule set, so you don't have to do a lot of creative development to figure out what baseball is. You have to do a lot of creative development to figure out how to fit all the rules of baseball in a 2K or 4K cartridge, but you don't have to do a lot of creative development to figure out what baseball is. We know what that is. The public knows what that is. It bridges the gap. It makes this accessible. It's like, oh, I can play baseball. That's cool. And then, of course, you've got the action games. I mean, you do have games like Atari's Combat that are shooting games and whatnot, and racing games and all of those things. It was a very confused picture in the early years, and Intellivision came out in that time period. You know, they really focused on the sports games, and I think they focused in part on the sports games because it's the same thing as with the Plimpton commercials, what they emphasized there. They knew they could do sports games better than the competition. They had more elaborate, tiled backgrounds which allowed them to create better semblances of a soccer pitch or a baseball diamond than Atari could. And they could put more objects on the screen so they could more easily have all of these different players. They also had a more complicated controller with more buttons, which made it easier for their system to control multiple players on a team than on Atari systems. 
I think they leaned into the sports as much as anything because they knew they had an advantage there. They did have some more action-y games, which we did talk about, games like Sea Battle and Armor Battle, that combine some light strategy elements with some action elements. But in that first round of games, action was not really their forte. Well, by 1980, Space Invaders has come out on the VCS. Obviously, it had already been out in the arcade for a while, but it comes out on the VCS. And it's immediately clear that all of this other stuff doesn't matter anymore. Yes, there'll always be a place for sports games. There'll always be a place for racing games. And there will always be a niche that may be interested in a more strategic experience. But after Space Invaders comes out for the VCS, and after the arcade just blows up with Defender and Pac-Man and all of these games in 1980, by 1980, it's very clear, let's stop wasting our time with education. Let's stop wasting our time with checkers. The people want the action games that they're seeing in the arcade, particularly in this time period where Pac-Man is only just starting to come in at the arcade. They really want those space shooting games. While Atari has those, Mattel doesn't. This is going to be a real problem going forward because it's clear that's where the market is going to be. So they make a concerted effort in 1981 with their new in-house programming staff to get in on the arcadey side of things and to particularly get in on the space shooty side of things. There are a few different products that come out in 1981 that kind of play into this. They do this both at APH and internally. APH creates a new cartridge that they call informally during production. They call it Some of Theirs. That's not the name it comes out as, obviously. But basically, it's a compilation cartridge that includes some of the bigger hits in the arcade. Because they have no games at this time that are derived from the arcade. Even the small number of action games that they do have are not really derived from arcade games. Because that wasn't their experience. They weren't coming out of that space like Atari was. They create this game that has variants of Tank, Jet Fighter, Breakout, and Pong. Those are four of the biggest, most massive hits that kind of defined what was popular in the arcade, and they were some of the early games, of course. I mean, the Atari VCS was basically created to be able to play Pong and Tank. That's what it was created to do. So, I mean, these are significant games. They end up taking out the Breakout and Pong games. Legal tells them to take them out, and that's almost certainly because of the looming threat of being sued by Sanders Associates and Phillips for the patents. We've talked all about the patent lawsuits involving ball and paddle games, so we won't again. But that's presumably why they took those out. It ends up having not Pong and Breakout. It ends up having three games called Battle Tank, based on Tank, Biplanes, based on Jet Fighter, and Racing Cars, which was their own version of a driving game. Those get released as triple action when it actually comes out. Another concept that had briefly been a hit in the arcades, so it ended up not being really sustained, was the so-called blockade style of game, which was based on the Gremlin creation blockade, where each player had a cursor on the screen, and they moved around the screen, and it drew lines on the screen, and then if your opponent crashed into one of those lines, you scored a point. It's basically the foundation of what is more commonly called a snake game today, based on the game on the Nokia phones. Snake has a few more rules to it than the original Blockade did, but that's kind of the lineage. They create another game that kind of is a takeoff on this Blockade gameplay. Mike Minkoff creates it called Snafu. 
which is never a huge seller. Triple Action is never a huge seller either, quite frankly, though it sells better than a lot of their games do, but it's it's not one of their biggest, biggest hits because e- these concepts are kind of long in the tooth by this point. Blockade came out in 1976. Triple Action is doing concepts that go back to 1974 in the arcade and go back to the launch of the VCS in 1977 in the home. You know, these are not going to be the barn burners, but they're filling in their action element, which is something that they had been completely lacking to this point. Far more important is going to be the space games, and there are two particularly important games in this area. One is they do get their own Space Invaders clone out there, because that was the new hotness in 1980. So by 1981, it's very clear that they need to have that. So APH creates a game called Space Armada which is basically their take on the whole Space Invaders thing. Obviously, that becomes one of the biggest sellers on the system. By the end of 1982, which is the last time we have really, really good sales figures internally, that game has sold nearly a million copies, and of course continues to sell in 1983 as well. So that's a big one for them. Then the other one is another interesting game that starts out as a clone of Asteroids, which is, of course, the other big hotness in the arcade besides Space Invaders, but ends up being something very different. And that uh, is a game called Astro Smash that was created by John Soule. John Soule was the first person essentially hired to be an Intellivision programmer internally. Levine and Minkoff preceded him, but he came in very soon after, and, and they were transferred over from doing the handheld games. He came in soon after. He was actually hired to be a handheld guy, too. But within two weeks, he was transferred to do in television games because they were building up their internal component. He's essentially the first guy that they hired to be an actual in television programmer. He had majored in statistics at Princeton, so he was more on the technical side than on the creative side in terms of his balance, but obviously ends up being a, a good creative person as well. He was asked to clone asteroids, but he decided that he didn't want to do a straight clone. You know, that's creative people. Creative people don't want to be shoehorned into just recreating what somebody else did. They want to put their own mark on things. And, you know, creative people are the kind of people that Baum was trying to bring into the company. So he decided instead he would basically combine Asteroids and Missile Command, which, of course, was another big hit in the arcade in 1980, and created a game that he called Avalanche, in which you have a gun battery at the bottom of the screen instead of the spaceship flying all around the screen that you have in Asteroids. And the rocks are actually falling from the top of the screen towards the bottom of the screen, and you have to destroy them before they hit the ground. It's a defensive game, very similar in that sense to Missile Command. He created that game, and it was kind of fun, but it wasn't Asteroids. Management was very unhappy. Gabriel Baum is in charge of the programmers, but he still reports into Richard Chang, above him in charge of design and development. Richard Chang was like, you were asked to do an Asteroids clone, and this isn't it. Go do an Asteroids clone. Sol was like, fine. So he went back, and he created an Asteroids clone that he called Meteor. However, when he was done creating the game, he realized he still had space on the cartridge. So he decided to put his Avalanche game in there as well as a variant. Atari had lots of variants on their cartridges. They always advertised them, you know, there's like 100 games on this cartridge, which no, there's not. There's just a bunch of little variants you can do. So he included Avalanche as a variant on the cartridge because he could sneak it in. Well, then after he's all done, as I said, there's a lot of emphasis on marketing, market research, involving other departments at Mattel. By the time he's all done, 
the legal people again get skittish, just like they did with the triple action game. And they decided if we make a game exactly like Asteroids, we may in fact get sued. We actually don't want Asteroids anymore. But good news, he had created the Avalanche game, even though he wasn't supposed to. So there was still a game. So they were like, instead, let's just do your Avalanche game as the game. They end up doing that. They ditch Asteroids, they ditch Meteor entirely, and they end up just doing the Avalanche concept, which is ultimately released as Astro Smash. This is the big game on the Intellivision. In terms of the total sales of all of their products, this is the second best-selling game on the system. And the only reason it's not the top-selling game is that from launch until late 1982, the blackjack and poker game is the pack-in game with the system. Every Intellivision game ships with that. So it's technically the best-selling game on the system because of that. But Astro Smash is the second best-selling game. By 1982, it had just squeaked by Space Armada, and it continued to sell at an accelerated rate versus Space Armada into 1983. It's an interesting game. I mean, it's got the rocks falling. It also has other enemies. It has these spinners that can suddenly, you know, fall at rapid speed. There are other enemies for additional challenge. And it also has a dynamic difficulty mode, which is an interesting thing that wasn't very common at that time. Whereas the speed of things coming at you and falling would speed up and slow down depending on how well you were handling the game to try to keep extended playing sessions going. So it's a great little action game that really didn't have a complete arcade precedent like so many others did. I mean, it's kind of like Asteroids meets Missile Command, but it's got its own take on it. So it was unique. It was action-packed. It had the adaptive difficulty, which made it available to play by a wide number of people. And it, and it became the action game answer on the Intellivision. And in fact, in late 1982, it replaces Las Vegas Poker and Blackjack as the bundled game with the Intellivision system because it's just so fun. It's definitely the most successful game on the system. It might not look like a lot now, but it is kind of an interesting. You just got a little ship at the bottom. You have a semblance of a mountain landscape in the background, and you have all these different colored asteroids coming down. You have a few ships there. Some of them shoot at you. You have that spinny thing coming down, and as you progress on, the sky changes color. It's simple, but yes, I can see definitely in the early 80s, compared to, say, something on the VCS, this is a major change in development. Absolutely. You know, they have some action games now, and they're able to get increasing traction uh, throughout 1981. They continue the George Plimpton commercials. They actually get into a bit of an advertising war with Atari, which is kind of fun. We'll talk about here just briefly. So in 1981, you know, they'd spent about three and a half million on Plimpton commercials just at the end of the year, you know, just November, December last year. Well, since those went over so well, they upped their advertising. You know, they spent 15 million on Plimpton commercials throughout 1981. You know, it's much bigger because it's the whole year. It's not just that last minute thing. They do this continued focus on how superior their system is. They actually hire the child actor, Henry Thomas, from E.T., who had played Elliot in E.T., to serve as a foil to George Plimpton, to be the representative for the consumer. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and so they have these back and forths between Plimpton and Thomas. Atari was kind of feeling these commercials a little bit. So they decided to hit back. They're like, let's do something that makes fun of their commercials, but also highlights what we have that they don't. 
in early 1981, what that was, was the action games. It's what we just talked about, how there was no good action games on the Intellivision. By the end of 1981, they're getting there. By the beginning of 1981, they don't have them. Atari airs a commercial in early 1981 with a smug child imitating George Plimpton, advertising the latest action hits coming in early 1981 from Atari, Asteroids, Missile Command, and Warlords. Basically saying, we have these great arcade games coming, and Intellivision has nothing close to that. They hit back on it. So then Mattel created another Plimpton commercial focusing on their space game, Space Battle, which was one of the launch titles. We talked about it briefly last episode, as well as Space Armada and Astro Smash, which we just talked about here. So they hit back saying that we have these games and they're superior to the space shooters that Atari is offering on its own system. They're actually going at it with each other. Atari gets so mad about this that they actually whine and complain to the television networks. (laughs) Really? They go to ABC, CBS, and NBC saying, wow, 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 this is unfair. This is violating broadcast standards because they're making fun of us. ABC and CBS are like, whatever, dude. NBC actually, in December, pulls all of their commercials from Atari and Mattel over this. Which is just hilarious. So they get into this little advertising tit-for-tat here. They did do this back and forth for a bit. In television, sales continued to rise. The internal figures say that they sold about 680,000 systems in 1981. The estimated figures were higher, which isn't surprising. So like my book has some higher figures, but those were estimated figures. We can probably trust Mattel's figures here better than that because there weren't other branded systems at this point. But they sell about 680,000 units in 1981 of the Intellivision. As I said, some of those action games that they were getting going start to sell more. They don't really get into high software volume until 1982 is really the turning point for them on software where they start seeing some big sales. But, you know, they're moving along and because their system's more expensive. They have a good market share by dollar volume. They've got about a quarter of the market now by dollar volume. That part of this business is starting to do great in 1981 and in 1982. In 1982, their sales rise again. I mean, that's the peak year, and their sales of the Intellivision rise to 1.1 million, over 1.1 million for the year. By the end of 1982, they've sold 2 million systems, which pales in comparison to Atari, but is still a nice, decent amount of sales. However, it is not in any way sustainable because they are about to hit a brick wall. Now that we've talked about the rising action within Mattel Electronics and the Intellivision, we have to conclude by discussing the falling action. To be fair, the falling action is the entire industry hitting a brick wall, not just Mattel. But not really, because Mattel has some problems of its own creation just as Atari has some problems of its own creation. And even if the entire industry had not fallen apart in 1982-83, Mattel was still going to be in a little bit of trouble, as we'll explore. First, we do have this lingering problem of the keyboard. I want to go back now and address the keyboard component. As we talked about last episode and this episode, this was going to be a major part of the entire point of this thing. You know, the Intellivision system that you bought, even though they called the whole thing Intellivision, the technical name of that was the master component. The reason for that being there were going to be other components, like the keyboard component. And the printer component. (laughs) Yeah, whatever other peripherals that they decided to put out for it. 
the keyboard component, it was initially, as we discussed, it was initially that, you know, it was going to be 250 for the Intellivision, 250 for the keyboard component. That was their plan, you know, half and half. Get the video game system and then upgrade to the computer. As they actually got involved in this keyboard component, they realized there were some serious problems. The main problem was the chipset in the Intellivision, which General Instrument was already creating before Mattel contracted them. That chipset in the Intellivision was really a video game chipset. Like, it was conceived at General Instrument as a video game chipset. It was not meant to be a computer chipset. The stick, the graphics chip, could only do a 20-column display. Computers, at the very least, for doing word processing, for doing documents, at the very least need a 40-column display. Preferably 80. Yeah, 80 is better. 80 was kind of the standard, what teletypes did back in the day. So at the very least, bare minimum, to call yourself a respectable computer, you needed a 40-column display. The stick could not do that. So this meant that they had to put a separate graphics chip in the keyboard component to be able to achieve a 40-column display. They chose a standard microsystems chip that was a clone of Texas Instruments chip, the TMS-9927. So now we have a graphics chip on the system. We have a graphics chip on the keyboard component. Then they hit another problem. While they had this kind of cool 16-bit CPU in the Intellivision, because of the way the bus worked, it was really slow in interfacing with peripheral devices. It could not interface with the tape drive on the keyboard component very quickly. It was slow as molasses. And it's not like tape is a fast medium to begin with. They ended up having to put a 6502 microprocessor on the keyboard component to be able to have it interface the system and the tape drive interface at a decent speed. So now there's a processor in the main system and a processor on the keyboard component. It has its own processor. It has its own graphics chip. Of course, it has memory expansion as well. So it has its own memory. They've basically had to create a whole new system, a whole new computer on the keyboard component. Throw some video out on it and maybe a sound chip and call that the computer and have it be separate. But they don't want to have a separate computer because that's not the point. They're not trying to sell a separate computer because something like that can't compete with Apple, can't compete with Tandy, can't compete with Commodore. The whole point is that you can turn your video game system into a computer. However, this ain't going to be no $250 with its own graphics chip, its own microprocessor, keyboard, tape drive, additional memory. So they announce a delay, and then they announce it's going to be $500. This is on top of the $250, $275, whatever that you've already paid for an Intellivision. Not a standalone product. $500 to upgrade. Eh, no. Then they have to keep delaying it, keep refining it, and by the time they finally do their test market in Fresno, once again Fresno, just like the Intellivision, in the fall of 1980, it is retailing for $700. Really, at that point, screw it, I'm buying a TRS-80 and calling it good. Yeah, exactly. You can buy a TRS-80 for less. I mean, it's ridiculous. So they do a test market. They don't have any software ready because they've been spending so much time trying to get this thing wrangled. They've not developed any software for it yet. 
So they release it without any software. You can, like, use the space bar on it in, like, armor battle or something to make something happen. I mean, you can use some of the keys on it in one or two of the existing Intellivision games. But there's no dedicated software for the keyboard component. Yeah, they release that, and no. They want to take it national in 1981, but they still have no software. It's still as expensive as heck. So they end up instead just doing a test market. Another test market. They tested in Fresno. Now they do another test market in two cities, Seattle and New Orleans. As they get more of them out in the field, it turns out that the tape drives are unreliable. They have high failure rates. It's still a $700 product. There's very little software for it. It's a disaster. It's an absolute disaster. By the summer of 1982, they still have basically nothing out there. It is barely sold. And in July, they decide to kill the product entirely. They cancel it. However, by this time, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has taken notice of all of these shenanigans because they were promising a keyboard component all the way back in 1978 when they started hyping the system to the trade. They started promising a keyboard component to the public in 1979 when they first did their test market of the Intellivision system. Now it's become a thing of they promised something that never happened, and they may have induced people to buy an Intellivision with the promise that they could turn it into a computer later, which is now a broken promise. That, ladies and gentlemen, is deceptive advertising. The Federal Trade Commission does not like that. So the FTC investigates in the summer of 1982. They meet with Mattel's lawyers. There's some myths that have gone around about this, so we want to dispel those. The myth that has circulated for years is that the FTC actually started fining them as much as $10,000 a day until a keyboard system was released. This is absolutely false. Uh, Braxton Bolstorff have talked to some of the lawyers from Mattel that were involved in this interaction with the FTC, and there were never any fines levied. What the FTC did do, though, is force Mattel to offer a refund to anyone who had bought the keyboard component, full refund. Or if the customer decided they wanted to keep their system, you know, they had to notify everyone who bought one. They could get a refund, or if they wanted to keep their pretty worthless keyboard component, they had to offer them $1,000 in Mattel Electronics products as compensation for them buying this complete waste of time boondoggle. So that's the unceremonious end of the keyboard component. However, there were still people in Mattel that really believed in this future for the system. I mean, David Chandler was still there, and this was really his baby. He really felt strongly about this idea of we have a system that we can expand into a computer. So they do start another project around October of 1982, a much more modest project called the Entertainment Computer System, or ECS for short, which is designed to really just be a bare-bones startup computer. It's not meant to be anywhere as elaborate as the other one. It's going to come with a keyboard, obviously. It's going to come with a 12K ROM chip that's going to have a new exec a new version of the operating system on it that can handle additional peripherals. Because they're planning to make this compatible, you can plug two more controllers into it. To have four controllers, you'll be able to plug a cassette drive in it. It's not going to ship with one, but you can plug one into it. Maybe a printer. They also are going to do a music keyboard, they've decided at this point, as an accessory. So they need a new exec that can handle these new peripheral devices. So it has a 12K ROM chip for all of that. It has 2K of RAM to give it a little more of a memory boost. They add a second sound chip to it, the exact same sound chip that's already on the Intellivision itself, 
for the purpose of doubling the number of sound channels that the system has, which I presume is going to be very important with things like a music keyboard. It doubles the number of sound channels. It has a little more RAM, and then they plan to do a program expander attachment at a later date. This never releases, but they plan to do a program expander that's going to add more RAM and ROM and then maybe allow you to do things like some basic programming or whatnot. So this is a much more modest thing that they're coming up with. It's initially designed to ship with the Intellivision 2, the cost-reduced system that we talked about before. The idea is that those will fit together. So it's designed to look like the new Intellivision 2 is going to look. It's designed to fit together with that. As the Intellivision 2 gets delayed more and more, not coming out until late 1983, they do decide to release the Entertainment Computer System, the ECS, separate from that. So they actually redesign the look of it so that it'll also look right with an original Intellivision. They do finally release this ECS. It's not much of a thing. They had plans to make it more of a thing through future expansion components, but of course that never comes to fruition because of stuff. That dream just won't die. They're wasting all of this time on this that they probably shouldn't be. But, you know, that's an interesting side note, but it's not really the main problem. The main problem that the system has is that the only advantage it has is that it is a more sophisticated system than the VCS. Overall, it doesn't have as robust a game library. I mean, there are some individual games that are good games and that do well. The baseball game does well. Astro Smash does well. You know, it it has some games that are okay. They do a role-playing game, a, a Dungeons & Dragons game late in 1982 that does okay. They have interesting games like Don Daglow's Utopia, which we don't have time to discuss in this game, but was kind of an early precursor to god game strategy games like Civilization. I mean, there's some cool stuff going on, but it doesn't have the robust library that the VCS has. It's much more expensive than the VCS is. The one real thing it has going for it is that it's a more sophisticated system. Well, in 1982, Atari releases their 5200 and Coleco introduces their ColecoVision. The ColecoVision especially is cheaper than the Intellivision, it's more capable than the Intellivision, and it has some of the latest arcade hits like Turbo Zaxxon and Donkey Kong. The ColecoVision is a direct existential threat to the Intellivision, and Mattel is not prepared for it. They have some stuff in development. They have some sort of next-gen systems in development. There's a lot of competing things going on, actually. They have one system that started out as a collaboration between APH, the contract developer, and Mattel Electronics, which ended up being called the Intellivision 3, because the Intellivision 2 is the cost reduced, that was basically going to be a slight upgrade to the Intellivision. It was going to be fully backwards compatible. It was going to be a little more capable. It was going to have another GI processor, another 16-bit GI processor, in order to maintain the backward compatibility, but it was going to be a little more robust. It was going to be a little faster. There was going to be a new stick called the Stick 1B that, again, was a little more capable, better moving objects, more moving objects. This was kind of an incremental upgrade. It was first kind of mooted in 1979, and it was under continual uh, development here throughout this period. Even before the Intellivision 3 really got going, there was already another system being mooted by David Chandler. The Intellivision 3 was kind of an APH-driven product, whereas David Chandler, the engineer inside Mattel, he had his own thing he wanted to do. And so he was starting work on something called the Intellivision 4, which was really meant to be the next great leap forward. 
They were going to partner with Motorola. It was going to use a Motorola 68000 processor, their very popular 16-bit processor, and then it was going to use a fancy graphics chip from Motorola as well that was going to be kind of really cool. They were breaking fully with GI at this point. GI did make a proposal for the Intellivision 4 for a new graphics chip and a new processor for it. Chandler just completely breaks. They're going to go to Motorola. It's going to be a true next-generation system, whereas the Intellivision 3 is more of an incremental upgrade system. They have all of these systems going on at once. They have no clear path forward. The Intellivision 2 keeps getting delayed. Their cost-reduced Intellivision doesn't come out until 1983. So they are unprepared in 1982 when the ColecoVision and the 5200 are suddenly coming out. There really isn't a value proposition anymore for the Intellivision in this market. If you just want a video game system, cheapest you can get with the largest game library, you're going to get a VCS. If you want a sophisticated system, you're now going to get a ColecoVision. You're not going to get an Intellivision. So Mattel finds themselves squeezed out. And in addition to this, you have the generally overheated market. I talked to Josh Denham about the situation, and he said that in 1982, Mattel got $1 billion worth of orders from distributors, retailers, etc., for game systems, game accessories, cartridges, whole nine yards. As Josh Denham said, even a sophisticated company like Mattel that's always been known for its market research and forecasting abilities, they knew that $1 billion wasn't the real order. They knew that that wasn't really what the market could bear. The problem, however, was they didn't know what the actual number was either. So they're trying to figure out how much product they should actually make to serve the market because they know the market is overheated. They know the orders are too high, but they don't know what the real order is either, and they don't want to miss the market. Then in the middle of this, ColecoVision comes out of nowhere and completely screws things up. So even the forecasting that they're doing is completely messed up by the arrival of the ColecoVision. Mattel, to try to stay competitive, is forced to start offering a rebate on the console in September 1982. They start offering a $50 rebate on the Intellivision, which has never really dropped in price since its launch. That brings it down closer to the VCS and about even, I think, with the ColecoVision and gives them perhaps a chance, but it's a money-losing proposition. I mean, it's cutting into their profits. Then it turns out that at Christmas, Intellivision sales really start to dry up because they're getting squeezed out of the market by ColecoVision and the VCS. For the first time, they do not post a profit in Christmas of 1982. For the period from November to January, they lose something like $20 million. I blame the advertising budget. (laughs) It's not. They're completely getting squeezed out by the other competitors. So orders are down because people that would have bought an Intellivision are buying a ColecoVision instead. And they're having to discount what they have so much to remain competitive that they're destroying their margins on their product. That $50 rebate essentially becomes permanent. By the middle of 1983, they realize that they have a complete unmitigated disaster on their hands. On June 30th, for the first time, they have a mass layoff. 15% of the workforce at Mattel Electronics, 260 people, are let go. Two weeks later, Josh Denham steps down as the president of Mattel Electronics because somebody has to take responsibility for this. They bring in a guy by the name of Mac Morris to be the new president of Mattel Electronics who comes from Lifesavers, the breath mint company. Financing? (laughs) He was marketing, I think, but he was commodities marketing. He was a guy selling something that was really cheap, Lifesavers. They keep discounting the system more and more. By July, it's available for as little as $50, which they cannot make money on. I mean, that's impossible. 
For the quarter, they announce a loss of $166.7 million. By August, you can literally buy an Intellivision for $9.95. This is not $995, that's $10 before tax and everything else. So round up, maybe $10, $11, you can buy it. Pretty much taking the family out to dinner at fast food. Yes, because at this point, they've been squeezed out. There's no more demand for the Intellivision because that Coleco system has basically taken over from it. So they have a lot of stock that they end up having to give to liquidators, mass market discounters. Those companies start offering the system for $60. But remember, Mattel has this standing $50 rebate that's never gone away. So you buy it at the store for about $60 for like $59.95. You redeem your $50 rebate from Mattel, and you have just gotten yourself a $9.95 console. They have another layoff in August, 400 employees, over a third of the staff. They have another layoff in November. And at that point, they've decided that they're getting out of the business. As we've talked about in other episodes, Mattel itself almost goes bankrupt. It gets bailed out by some investors. But Mattel itself is almost brought to bankruptcy by this. So Mattel's like, this is done. We got to close it down. They keep it going through CES. That's because they had to make it seem like they were going to continue support the product through Christmas in order to stop retailers from returning everything that they bought for the Christmas season and creating an even bigger disaster. So, I mean, I think by November or so, they'd already decided they were getting out. But they had to keep the business going through CES 1984 in order to stop retailers from returning everything. So they have a booth at CES, and then on January 20th, 1984, they inform the remaining staff that they will all be let go and that the division is going away. That should have spelled the end for Intellivision entirely. It did not because of a gentleman by the name of Terrence Valesky. Valesky had only recently been hired in 1983 as the VP of Sales and Marketing as they were cleaning house as Denim left and they were rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Valesky was brought in as the new VP of Sales and Marketing for Mattel Electronics. He attended that CES, that final January CES, and from his perspective, he thought that there was still a little bit of interest out there. Buyers were still coming around. I mean, was this going to be a big thing again? Um, No, it wasn't going to be a big thing again, but he didn't think it was completely played out. He thought there was still a market, even if it was a small one, for the Intellivision. He got a group of investors together, and he proposed to Mattel Management that he would buy the Intellivision business and all of the remaining stock to create his own company to continue marketing this product. Mattel was absolutely happy to do this because, I mean, just closing it down, they weren't going to get anything. They were really bleeding capital. So if somebody wanted to throw a few million their way to take what they considered worthless junk off of their hands, they were absolutely happy to do this. So Valesky and his group of investors founded a company called INTV, which had a couple of meanings. INTV was the shorthand used within the company for the Intellivision system. It also happens the TV are Terrence Valesky's initials, which he kind of liked as well. So they found a new company, INTV. They buy out the Intellivision business, the rights to everything, the leftover stock, the whole thing, for a reported $20 million, though Valesky himself has said that it was closer to $10 million, but it was reported at the time as $20 million, to keep the Intellivision business going initially as a mail-order business. They sent out catalogs to everyone that had returned a warranty card over the years for the Intellivision. These kind of things usually get about a 2% response rate. 
according to Valesky, who again, Braxton and Bullersdorf talked to him, I haven't, they got closer to like an 8% return rate, which is still a tiny amount, but I mean, that's huge within the context of how this stuff usually works. In 1985, they're able to actually make about $6 million, which is not a lot of money, but I mean, they're actually making money. Valesky is able to use this to buy out the remaining investors, so INTV becomes solely Valesky's company. By the end of 1985, they've run through the remaining backstock of systems, of the cost-reduced, because the Intellivision 2 had come out by now, so of the cost-reduced Intellivision 2. So in October 1985, they released something called the INTV System 3. Now, just to make things very confusing, this is not the System 3 that was under development at Intellivision that would have been an incremental upgrade to the original system with new graphics chip and CPU from GI. This is merely a cosmetic change. But basically, at this point, he's starting to manufacture his own system because he's through the back stock. It's an Intellivision. It's not a new system. It just looks slightly different. But they start creating a few new games here and there. Uh, they get into retail a little bit, I believe. They never have much business. Most of the time, the press completely ignored them. The one article that deigned to include their market share that I found comparing them to Nintendo, Sega, and Atari, because everyone just compared those three. No one mentioned in television, INTV. The one article that one time estimated their market share that I found said that they had about 2% of the market. They were nothing. They were small fry. But they limped along throughout the entire 1980s. They even at one point considered releasing the Intellivision 3 the one that Mattel had been working on, because the prototypes were still around. They got the prototypes, and they announced in 1987 that they were going to release the INTV System 4, which was going to be that Intellivision 3. All of these Roman numerals are completely confusing because they mean different things at different companies. The System 4 was going to be the Intellivision 3. They never actually release it, but that shows the fact that they were even thinking about releasing it shows that they were having moderate success. And then finally, by 1990, INTV is actually interested in getting involved in making software, because by this point, they've actually commissioned some new games for the Intellivision. They want to get involved with actually Nintendo or Sega or whoever, and, and maybe actually create some games for these systems that are doing much better. In order to sign licensing agreements with these other companies, they basically are told that you have to drop your own hardware system. You can't be a competitor to us in hardware if you're going to sign on to do software for us. Since the business was so small at that point anyway, by 1990, at that point, Valesky makes the decision to terminate sales of the Intellivision system. But still, it's, it's remarkable. A system that was released in 1979 technologically probably should have been released in 1978, and was essentially dead by the end of 1983, continues to be available and sold in very limited quantities all the way till 1990. So that's kind of an, an interesting kind of coda to the whole thing. It had a longer zombie life than it had an actual life. It, it did. It really did. Which just goes to show how excited the entire marketplace was by video games again in the late 1980s. Because even though Intellivision was never realistically ever going to compete with Nintendo or Sega or even Atari at that point, there was enough renewed video game excitement that by having a very low-key small operation, Valesky could still make some money on the old Intellivision. Well, I'm going to have to go euthanize this zombie. While I go to that, Alex, why don't you tell the nice people what we're talking about next time? You know, Jeffrey, I'd like to talk about a game again. We don't talk about games very often. 
We're a video game podcast, so we talk about games all the time. But we talk about companies, we talk about systems, we talk about trends. People. We don't talk about games. People, occasionally people. We don't often have episodes about games. Occasionally, it's a nice change of pace to do that. So I'd like to talk about a game that we've talked about all the time, but just bits and pieces here, bits and pieces there. That's Space Invaders. I thought we talked about that ad nauseum. I mean, you got Atari, you got Arcade, you have things at the bottom shooting up. We have those different versions of the Arcade with the pretty background. Sometimes no pretty background, 16 bazillion ports. People losing their minds with having to have quarter yen things going on, which was a fake, which then became real, then became fake, then real. No one knows anymore. It's all crazy. (laughs) Haven't we covered this? We've done episodes on Taito. We've done episodes on the beginning of the Japanese arcade. We've done episodes on the golden age of arcade games. Space Invaders is part of all of those stories. We've done episodes on the VCS. Space Invaders is part of all of those stories. Sometimes, you know, especially at this point in the podcast history where we've talked about almost everything at least a little bit, sometimes it's nice to have just all of the info in one place for easy reference. Space Invaders is a game that there's more than enough information. Maybe we gave it 10 minutes in this episode on Taito or 20 minutes in this episode on the arcade. But there's enough there that we can give our full, in-depth, hour-and-a-half treatment to just Space Invaders and the context around it, because we always put things in larger context, and just have a one-stop shop for this. And Space Invaders is an important enough game that I think it's worth doing that, especially since we have updated our understanding of it so often. Like you said, the thing being a myth and then not a myth, so we've issued corrections, we've said different things different places. Let's just have a definitive clearinghouse for Space Invaders, at least for the next three months until I learn something new again. Okay, then we will have to go and prepare for next time, where we discuss Space Invaders, the definitive truth, for the next five minutes. (laughs) Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.